I have a, uh, it's become a favorite story. Uh, it's a short story. I actually reread it this week. Uh, every couple of years I kind of go back and reread it. It's by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. That's kind of famous for Lord of the Rings and uh, a lot of other things. He's a brilliant writer, uh, believer. But he wrote this short story that kind of caught my attention many years ago called Leaf by Niggle is the name of the the story. It's only about 10 pages. You can actually go search for it online. You can find it for free in a whole bunch of places. And uh, it's not that, obviously, it's about 10 pages. It's not that long, not that hard to read. But it's it's about a guy um, who really has a passion for painting. He wants to be a painter, and he loves to paint. He has this giant canvas, and he has this vision of this painting he wants to paint. And he's going to paint this great big tree and this scene and the story is about how he just, this is his heart's desire and he loves this and he wants to be about it, but he, he has this problem with, with finishing this painting and actually has several problems with finishing this painting. One is he's not a great painter. Uh, he, he's, he, he's really good at painting the leaves and he gets lost in each leaf on this tree that he's trying to paint, but he never can really get to the rest of it. But then his other problems are that he keeps getting interrupted. Uh, some of it's his job. Uh, some of it's his next door neighbor who needs help, his friends, different things that are going on. And so every time he sets out to paint, you know, the knock comes at the door and someone's interrupting him or he's got to go to work or he's got to do other things. And so there's lots of interruptions and lots of hard things that go with that in the story. And uh, really, as you read through it and as you think about it, um, uh, I, I guess I'm drawn to this story and I'll get to the ending of it later, but I'm drawn to it because in a lot of ways I feel like this main character, <laughs> uh, sometimes shackled by my own limitations and the things that I want to do and want to see happen and I can't quite make it happen, but sometimes just the frustrations of the things that come in life and kind of pull you away from the things that you most want to be doing. I think if we're honest, all of us face this. All of us probably can relate to that in some way or another. Sometimes the way in which we even think about that, uh, you could put it in the, the urgent versus the important, if you've ever heard that matrix before. The things that are pressing needs in front of you in your life, and they're urgent, and I've got to go take care of this, but it may not be the most important thing. And so we're always kind of wrestling with that, and that's really what this story is about in a whole lot of ways, like a, a constant battle. And I think when you really start to think what's underneath that, it has some huge implications about what you believe and what you care the most about. And not only that, who your true self is and what you're after in life, the things that you give your time to and how you balance those and the decisions you make. And so I think it's uh, one of those things that we all struggle with at different times. And I was thinking about that story a lot this week as I reread it and kind of wrestling with some of those things. But what Jesus says here in our passage actually helps us to deal with that in a very real way. Um, if you look closely at what he's saying here, when we get to it in verses 25 and 26, and he's talking about your life and those who lose it for my sake will gain it. And he uses that over and over, uh, verse 26, it talks about, um, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Or it may say life. It actually, the word there is life, but what it's really saying is your true self, who you are created to be. And Jesus says some really important things about what that means and what that looks like and how that works in our passage here today. And so I want us just to think about that. Hopefully for you, uh, this was really vitally relevant for me in my own life as I was reading it and thinking about it. And I hope it is for you as well as you hear Jesus's words and what he says here. And so the way I want us to look at this passage 
as we think about it, is what Jesus says about what we're truly made for. He's going to say some great, big, important things here, what we're truly made for. Secondly, how we can be ignorant of it, or we can miss it, or we can reject it, or we can be too busy with other things. So how we miss it. But then lastly, there's a truth in this passage that I think is so glorious and so beautiful. If you see it, it helps you begin to live out what Jesus says you're truly made for. And so those are kind of the three things that we're going to look at. But let's just start with what he says that we're made for, what he's talking about here. Let me give you a little background just to get you to where we are. We're in this last section of Matthew chapter 16. We looked at the beginning of Matthew 16 last week. This kind of falls in a bigger series we've been doing as we've just been working chronologically through the Gospels. We're in the third year of Jesus's ministry, and there's lots of opposition, lots of people coming up against him. We saw that last week, but then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And we have this wonderful uh, uh, confession of faith that Peter makes. He says, you're the Christ, you're the, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because it's God himself. It's the father who's revealed this to you. And we talked about that last week, and and that's kind of where we ended. And he says, I'm going to build my church. It's going to be on this confession and who I am, and you guys are seeing that. And so it's kind of like this this moment, right? They're, They're seeing who Jesus is, and they're starting to understand that he is the Messiah, and they're really excited about it. But then we get to the next thing he says here in verse 21, and it's like Jesus drops a giant bomb that shatters the way they think. In fact, it's so big that they don't even really get what he's saying. But he says in verse 21, if you look at what it says there, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he says this thing here and he starts to tell them this. And this is the first of many times that Jesus is going to say this. If you read through the gospels, there's a whole lot of this. Jesus telling them he's going to die. And he says it a lot. And if you read through like John's gospel, John will even mention, and he said this and he was talking about his death to come, but we didn't get it, right? John kind of makes these parenthetical things as he, as he writes through. He talked about the temple being torn down and raised in three days, and that really had to do with what he was going to do, and none of us saw it. And they couldn't see it in a whole lot of ways because their paradigm that they were living in about who the Messiah was didn't account for him coming in the middle of history and dying and then raising again. They had no idea of that. And so whenever Jesus says this, it either goes way over their head or like Peter here, they get really upset and they go, no, no, no. And it's because they're so locked in a certain understanding. But he's going to say this to them over and over again. And he says here, like, right, it says from that time he began to show his disciples from that time. He started to tell him over and over that I must go to Jerusalem and to die and to be raised again. And they're not going to understand it and they're not going to be able to see it. And they're still going to be struggling with it as he goes. But here's the thing that I want you to see. Their understanding was Jesus would be a conquering king that comes in the middle of history and sets up his kingdom. We're going to overthrow Rome. That's kind of what they're all waiting on. Like I think even in the background when Peter says, you're the Christ. And he goes, yes, blessed are you, Peter. That their expectation was like, okay, it's about to happen. This is it. Let's get ready. And then he turns around and he goes, no, I'm going to die. And the importance here when we start to think about what we're made for and what it is Jesus is saying 
is he's correcting their misunderstanding because if he accepted what they were saying and their understanding of him being a conquering king at that moment in history, our biggest problem wouldn't be dealt with. And Jesus came to solve our biggest problem so that we can live in the way that we were made to live. And our biggest problem is alienation from God because of our sin. And Jesus knows this, and he knows this why he's come. That's why he speaks in the language in the way he does here. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he has to lay his life down, that that is what he has come for. Because if he doesn't, and he sets up his kingdom, and he goes through that, we're still in our sins. And it's not dealt with. And the deepest desires of our heart and what we're made for is to have a relationship with the creator God of the universe. And that has been broken because of our rebellion and our sin. And if Jesus doesn't deal with that, we're lost. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you go and read there the way he, the conception of the way he says it, he says, I came to you and he's talking about the church in Corinth. And he says, I told you about the things of first importance. And you know what he says that is? that Jesus died and that he raised again. And he said, that's what I told you first because that's of the most importance. And then right after that, he says, because if he didn't, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You're hopelessly lost if that hasn't happened. And he says, that's of first importance. And that's really what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. For you to be who you were created to be, I have to come and do this. And so he's starting to get them ready for it. And he's starting to tell them of what that looks like. That if Jesus doesn't lay his life down, we are still alienated from God. We're still in our sins. We can't have this perfect relationship with a holy, righteous, perfect God in our sins unless Jesus comes and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He lives the life that we haven't lived. He does all of it perfectly. And then he takes upon himself the sins of all those that would put their faith in him. And he pays for it and he brings it to nothing. And he opens the way that we can have that relationship. And that's what he's talking about. I am going to do this and it must be this way. And he's starting to tell them this. But then he also starts to show them who we are in light of this and how important this is. I'll come back to what Peter says in a second. But look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so he starts to tell them what it looks like to follow him. And I want you to really think about this statement. You've probably heard this before. If you grew up in the church, you've heard people say, take up your cross and follow Jesus. We say that a lot, right? You've probably heard it a lot. I I was thinking about it. In in my however many years of growing up in a Christian church, I've probably heard that a thousand times. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, right? People say that all the time. And what we usually mean, or the connotation when we say it in a church today, or maybe you growing up hearing it, is kind of a spiritual connotation. Make Jesus savior of your life. Put your trust in Jesus, which is true. I'm not not saying it's not. But what I want you to really think about when he says this is how his first century uh, uh, audience hears this. Because when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, everybody there 
knew what he meant because they were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And what that means is probably just about everybody that hears him say that has seen a crucifixion. Right? Crucifixion was you come up against the Roman Empire and they see you as a threat. The way in which they deal with it is you get killed. And they do it publicly on a cross on the edge of town where everyone will see it. And the reason they do that is so they can go, this is what happens if you come up against Rome. If you start to even think about rebelling against what we're doing, this is where it leads. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, there's a visual that his audience had that was vivid and intense and serious. And it carried all this weight of what it looks like to come and die. And what Jesus is telling them and what he's calling them to is this is what it looks like to come and follow me. To die to yourself. To allow me to be not just your savior, but Lord of your life. To come and follow me in every way. It's it's why we use the way we talk about discipleship here. I say this almost every week. Our, Our mission as a church is to make disciples who make disciples. And then I say discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. Every area. All of it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Saying this is what you're created for. I have to go and lay down my life and I'm inviting you to come and put your trust in me because this is what you're made for. But we so often miss it. We miss it today in a couple ways just in the church today. We can get the things right and neither one is wrong, but we can overemphasize. You can think about it on a continuum. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in America, when we talk about our relationship with Jesus, it's all in personal terms. My personal savior invited him into my heart and it all becomes spiritual in that that's not wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong, but we think of it just kind of in this limited way. And then we end up thinking of Jesus, savior, spiritual life. This is part of my life over here. That's the spiritual part. And yeah, Jesus is my Lord and savior. But the rest of my life's not really affected by it. And it's kind of compartmentalized. And it's something I do on Sunday or maybe Wednesday or maybe in a Bible study or maybe different things. But it's this little compartment. And it becomes Jesus is my personal savior. Or maybe on the other end, it becomes Jesus is this bright, shining example. And he is more Lord. And I want to follow him. And I want to do the things that he says. And I want to stand up for the things that are wrong, which we should. I'm not making light of either one of these. They're both right. But what happens is we usually gravitate towards one or the other and we leave it there. Right? Jesus is either the Lord that I follow and I try to emulate and do some things. But we can easily get it wrong because then we start to try to operate uh, in earning our worth before God by, by what we do. Or we can make it so personal that nobody actually knows you're a believer because it hasn't affected your life. But what Jesus is saying is I created you to center around me in everything. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross. The thing that puts you in the center of your life, I'm supposed to be the center of your life is what Jesus is calling us to. And it's so easy for us to miss that. I want us to think about for a second how we miss it. Look at what he says here, right? He tells them that he must go and he die. He must die. But then look at what happens 
with Peter in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And it's easy when you read that. I don't know for you, but for me, when I read that, to chuckle. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> you gotta be, come on, Peter. <laughs> he just said, right? Like a minute before. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. What Peter's saying is you're the one that the whole Old Testament talked about. That we have long been waiting on. I believe you're him. And Jesus says, you're right. Blessed are you, Peter. God has revealed that to you. And then Jesus says, and so you're aware, I'm going to die. And he's starting to correct their misunderstanding. We've been talking about this all the way through the series. That they see it in one way and they're not seeing the truth of what Jesus has come. And so he begins to explain to them. And you can understand if you know history and you go back to the first century and what they believed and what they thought, you can understand why they missed it. You can understand why they didn't see the fullness of it and how they got locked into what their society thought. They got locked into the feeling and the intensity of being under the Roman Empire. And we desperately need a king that will come and save us and throw that off. And all those things, you can understand how they get there. And I'm empathetic to Peter being like, that's not the way it's going to work. Because they're so locked into this is what the Messiah is going to be. But even if that's so, Peter just said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. I believe you're the son of God. And then he says something that you don't think fits. And so what does he do? He grabs Jesus by the shirt and pulls him over and goes, that's not the way this is going to work. Is that not insane? You don't read that and go, what a buffoon. What is he doing? He just said, you're God. He's standing right in front of you. Why don't you ask the question, like, how could you die? But no, he goes straight to, I'm going to tell you how it is. And it's not going to be like this. And Jesus has a pretty harsh word. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. It's a swing of emotions for Peter. Right? You're the Christ. Yes, blessed are you, Peter. And I'm going to build my church on your confession. And you're going to go. And then two seconds later, get behind me, Satan. It's a pretty big swing. And you can read that and you can kind of understand a little bit of it. But then part of me wants to go, how can he do that? How can he with everything that he's seen of Jesus? The miracles, the walking on the water, the calming the storm, the way he's preaching and teaching, the incredible wisdom with which he's speaking, and now you're going to step up and tell him how wrong he is? But if you stop and think about it, we do the same thing all the time. Just about every day. All sin is rebellion against God. And if you really stop and think about it, it's correcting him. Saying it doesn't work in this situation. 
Yeah, 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 I got you. And Jesus, you're my savior. And yes, I put my faith in you. And yes, I'm trusting you for my salvation. But I don't think what you say here will work in my life right now. Right? It's the same thing that Peter does. When he goes, hey, this isn't going like this. If you really stop and think about it, we do the same thing. And if you put it in the day-to-day of your life, kind of where I started, when you think about the urgent over what's most important, that's what happens to all of us, isn't it? You start to feel things in your life and the things that you're dealing with, and you're right in the middle of it, and your emotions and the things that are coming at you and the things that you're dealing with and they press in and they're right on top of you and all of a sudden you focus on those things that seem so urgent that you forget the most important. Right? Have you ever done that in different ways? Through the years, I think of different things that I hear people say or different conversations I've had, even within the church, with professing believers. And I think Peter's a professing believer. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. I've heard guys say to me through the years, usually I don't, I've never heard a woman say this, so I'm, I don't think. It's usually guys. Uh, you'll see some horrible story on the news, some act of violence, something. Guy will go, if anybody ever did that to my family, I'd kill them all. You go, really? Doesn't God say vengeance is mine and turn the other cheek and love people? And they go, yeah, but not in that situation. Are we not doing exactly what Peter's doing when we do that? Here's the clear command of God's word and what he says. We go, yeah, but it wouldn't work in this situation. Or how often I've heard someone, and I don't say this lightly, someone who's really, really wronged you. A deep hurt in your life. And you were completely wronged. Maybe of no doing of your own. And they'll say, I will never be able to forgive that. And Jesus tells us to forgive. In fact, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. He makes a connection between your understanding of the grace that you have received and what God has done for you in your life and the way in which you forgive others. And I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not saying that to, to point the finger and grind it on it. Maybe you're struggling with forgiveness right now with somebody. But I want you to really stop and think about it. How is that different from what Peter's doing? You're kind of grabbing God by the collar and going, you tell me to forgive, but it, you don't know my situation. It doesn't work with what I'm dealing with. Or how often uh, a romantic relationship and you start dating someone and it gets more and more intense and you're in love with this person and you start to think, this is the person I'm going to spend my life with. It makes sense that we would go ahead and have sex now. And in this situation, it's okay. And in this situation, God will understand and he'll know what's going on. And what we're saying is, in my situation and right now, what you tell me is true is not really true for me. We're taking God by the collar and going, this doesn't really work. The same in marriage. 
difficult season in marriage. This would be easier if I just got divorced. This isn't really working for me anymore. I'm just going to go ahead and step out of that because this isn't the case of what this won't work in my situation. Now, I, I, I say that as the Bible does tell you there's times where there is divorce and there are things that come into that. But oftentimes that's not what we talk about. We go just right flying past that. And we ignore the things that God says. And we say, in my situation and what I'm dealing with, that doesn't work. Or maybe it's finances. I can't tell you many, had this conversation many times through the years. Somebody comes, we're struggling with finances. And I say, how is your giving? And I don't mean just giving to our church or giving to, but the Bible tells you to give and give generously. And then God says, try to outgive me. He says, if you start with what you have and you give back to God from the beginning, I will bless you in ways you can't imagine. And so often I say that to somebody and they go, well, things are really tight right now. I can't really do it right now. And because of this and because of those things. And so what they're saying and what we all say at different times is we go, God, what you tell me is true doesn't work in my situation today. And here's the reasons why. Jesus doesn't say, take up your cross, follow me partially, carry it a little ways and then lay it down when you need to and pick it up again when it suits you. He's calling you to come and die, to die to yourself and trust me with everything. Even his summary here of the way he says it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I want you to think about what he's saying there. Or even what he says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And then he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's really a summary of all of it, is it not? You have a choice to make. You're going to die to yourself and you're going to seek to center everything on God and who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Or what we often do is we go, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but I'm going to keep these things over here. I'll die to myself in this area and this area and this area, but maybe not this one. And that's not the call. And what he's saying to you is that when you don't, when you try to save your life, right? Verse 26, or I'm sorry, verse 25. For whoever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice what he says. Whoever would save his life, whoever would reassume the place of the driver in this, and instead of dying to yourself, you take it back, you're going to lose it. To Jesus' words. You're going to do these things and there's going to be some consequences. I'm not saying you're not saved. All of us have moments of unbelief and we struggle through that, but there's consequences that come with that. And he says you're going to lose it. Or he says, what will it profit you to gain all these things, but then miss the 
your true self. That's really what he's saying. Like if you look at here in the ESV, it says if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, that word's still the word for life, but that word has a range of meaning. And that's, I think that's why they say soul in verse 26 versus life in verse 25. It's the same word, but it's the context. And the range of meaning there is he says, if you forfeit your life and you don't follow me, you'll never find your true self. You'll never find what you're actually made for, which is God's presence and trusting him in everything. And it will always be better. And so we miss it because we let our limited view stand over what God's word says. We get swallowed up in the urgent over the important. We let our emotions and our feelings and the circumstances of what's happening end up driving us rather than trusting what God's told us. And so how do we get there? How do we really live into what we were made for and what Jesus is calling us to versus reassuming control and making it all about what we do. I think there's something really helpful here that Jesus says. Verse 25, he says, for whoever would lose, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or think of it, We gain the whole world and forfeits his true self. Or what shall a man give in return for what he was made for? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will pay each person according to what he's done. When you start to think about, but man, that's really hard at different times. And it is. If you feel beat up with what I just said, I stepped on your toes. I know it's difficult. I'm with you. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm the same. There's times when I operate in unbelief. I don't know how that works, right? I may not say that, but that may be the way I'm living. And it's not to beat you up, but I want you to please hear this. There is nothing that you will do in your life where you seek to honor God over your feelings and your culture, your emotions, the things that you are dealing with that you will ever regret. Ever. That's what Jesus says here. You try to save your own life and you try to take back control and you do it yourself, you're going to lose it. But when you put your faith and trust in me, you're going to gain more than you can ever imagine. And I want you to really think about what he says because he says here, The son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and he will repay each person according to what he's done. The Bible says we're going to stand in front of him and give an account for everything we've done and said. For those in Jesus, he's going to open that up and you're going to stand there in front of him. And it says all the things that you did where you tried to take back your life, they're going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Poof, gone. Right? So all the things that you said, I don't think you know, Jesus. I'm going to do it my way. You're going to stand in front of them and all that's gone in an instant. And you're going to know. 
You're going to know that you were trying to do it yourself and you were ignoring God and you were trying to take it back. And that's all going to be gone. And the glorious good news is you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to be clothed in his righteousness. And in those moments when all that vanishes, you're going to realize more fully what he did for you. All of that sin and all of those things that he took upon himself and he paid for it and he brought it to nothing. And you're going to see it in a way that you've never seen it before. But then it says he's going to take the things that you did in faith and he's going to reward you for it. I can't even understand that. I believe it because the Bible says it, but I don't understand how that can work. I'm going to stand before him. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And every good thing I ever did was because I was trusting him and he was working in and through me. And you're going to know that. But here's what I want you to see. The things right now where you want to take it back, don't. It will be far better now and it will be far better then. And you'll be so glad that you did. That's what he's telling us. Don't take it back and think I can do it better on my own. Trust him in everything. And when you get to the end, you will be so glad you did. I told you at the beginning, I really like that story by Tolkien. About this guy named Niggle. Who wants to paint Yeah, it's a funny name, isn't it? (laughs) But he wants to do this big painting, but he keeps getting interrupted. And he gets interrupted because he's got to help his neighbor. And his neighbor's wife is sick. And his roof needs patching. And all these things that keep pulling him away. And he never gets to finish his painting. And you get to the end of the story. And he now says he has to go on a long journey. And he can't work on his painting anymore. And as you read, you realize the long journey that he's going on is because he's died. He never got to finish it. The painting's a few leaves that are done, and that's it. And the rest of it he never got to. But I love the story so much because he goes and he gets on this train and he goes on this long journey and he gets off the train and he rides his bike and he comes down this path and he comes upon this clearing. And there's this tree in all its glory, perfect and full and everything that he had in his mind. And there it is laid out before him. And I love that story because it's what Jesus says. The things that you give up today to follow me, you will get back a hundredfold. You're not actually losing anything. It'll be so much far better. So please hear me when I say this. It is a lie from the pit of hell that you can take it back and do the things that you think that are opposite of what God says and it work out better. That's not true. It's going to be so much greater trusting in Jesus and what he tells you in every area of your life, now and forever. And I know that's difficult. And I know it's hard when you're walking by sight and things that are in front of you. But my prayer for each one of us is that God would continue to show us his glory. To where nothing else makes sense except trusting him in every area of our life.
Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are. What you've done for us. What it means for us that you were willing to come and to lay down your life. To accomplish for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. I pray that when we are tempted to take back control of our life. Or take back the mirage of control of our life that you would remind us that your way is always better that trusting you is always better i pray that when we're pushed to the limits of our understanding that you would increase our faith that you would show us the ways in which you're working that you would give us glimpses of those things that you would continue to strengthen us that we would trust in you more fully in all things we thank you that you love us so much that you tell us these things for our good and you're going to bring them to completion and we can trust in that. Help us to see that afresh today. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.